Before I start this episode, I'd like to preface this story with a personal statement. This is one of my favorite stories in all of history. It's an honor to share my account of this story. And for this reason, my prayer for the listeners is that you can hear my passion for the story and see in this account a greater measure of God's glory than you've ever seen before. The king of the Gibeonites stood on a rampart of his city walls about 18 miles north of Jerusalem. Almost dumbfounded by the sight in front of him, he stared down from his walls toward the valley of Ajalon. In the valley was lines and lines of troops, mighty soldiers, siege equipment, giants, and formidable forces rallying together marching against his city. In five distinct groups, each led by their king, There was no doubt this was the entire armies of the remaining southern Amorite kings of Canaan, each marching to the gates of his city. As if amazed by their intricacy in marching, for their numbers seemed to cover the earth, it was too fantastic. His generals were dumbfounded as well. The king and all of the generals were motionless, staring at their sheer doom and death that confronted them. But instantly, as if slapped in the face, the king stepped backward. Color returned to his face. He breathed deeply and looked up to the sky and began to shout orders. We must act now. Send three riders immediately to Joshua and the Israelites, each via different routes with this message. Deliver this message. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. Immediately, a scribe wrote down the orders, handed them to another man who ran as fast as he could down the ramparts. The king turned to his generals, split your forces, close the gates, hold the perimeter. We must hold out until Josh returns with his forces. It took him three days to get here last time. We'll have to find a way to hold on for days, and only if he decides to honor his word. Otherwise, he looked down at the massive armies. We are doomed. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 34, Sun Stand Still. Taking a hint from screenwriters... You always build up your bad guy so that your good guy shines brighter. So let's talk about the supreme bad guy of these episodes with Joshua and Israel. The previous account was fictional in nature, but we do know that there was five kings of the Amorites who agreed to settle their differences and attack the Israelites. Also, we know the man who brought the kings together, and his name is Adonai Jezek. And who keeps coming up in our episodes, his name does not mean Lord of Justice, like I said before, but more becoming his name means the Lord is Righteous. Who is this Adonai Jezek? Frankly stated, he is the false king upon God's holy mountain, the false ruler of the city of Jerusalem. We don't know a lot of direct facts about him from the Bible, but we can clearly take a lot from what little we do know of him. He was the king of Jerusalem. He was the leader of a group of five kings. He was seated on God's future throne. He was seated at the throne of David in Jerusalem. This wasn't by error. 
In a time of defilement and Nephilim and demonic invasion, he was a leader of kings. He is clearly a head of a government of hostile nations, those placed by the devil himself to keep God's people from their inheritance. With that being said, let's break down his name. Adonai Jezek. Adonai is one of the names of God himself, meaning Lord. The word Jezek means righteous. Combining the two, his name means the Lord is righteous. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Adonai Jezek is a pretender, a false Christ, an early form of an antichrist, the devil's man if not possessed by the devil himself. His name means God is righteous, or the Lord is righteous. He's a pretender in the time of Joshua. What a strange name for a pretender, except that he was just that, a pretender. It's almost like God was saying, I will show my righteousness by doing away with this unrighteous king in my land. My righteousness will prevail by removing unrighteousness in even those who pretend to be righteous and are not. The name of the city of Jerusalem means the teaching of peace. God's peace is very different than we understand peace. It is the peace of Jesus Christ. Adonai Jezek was the opposite of peace. He was a lord of war, fighting directly with God and his leaders. Peace must be returned to the land. Unfortunately for the Amorites, it will have to come through victory and war. God's peace is different than the peace we understand. Remember those famous pieces in history, the Pax Romania, the Pax Britannia? Those were the result of conquest. After the conquest of their enemies, a peace fell over the world, generally speaking. Soon there will be a Pax Israel, however short it lasts due to sin and idolatry. God was going to show his righteousness by giving Abraham's descendants the man credited with righteousness his righteous reward, the people and land his promise, and take it from the false lord of righteousness, the pretender who seized and took and refused to relent from the theft of God's land so many years ago. Let this episode be a message to the kings of the earth. Do not take what is unlawfully yours, for God will show his righteousness and justice and deliver upon his promises not yours. Now we get to Gilgal. Joshua receives the word for the messengers, and this is where the story gets really good. We're talking action, action, action. And it never really lets up, and when the story gets good, it only gets better and more outrageous. Honestly, we're dealing with the military genius in Joshua, mighty armies, ridiculous quantities of troops, and bloodshed at a at an unbelievable level, and add in the view behind the veil that we actually get. So let's start with the day of the week. It's really impossible to know what day of the week this battle starts, but I'm going to start with Thursday so we get a context of a timeline. It's a Thursday, most likely in the spring to summer months of 1400 BC. It's Thursday night, and the messengers arrive and communicate the message to Joshua. Joshua reads it privately and dismissed himself and talks to God. God's response is in Joshua 10, 8. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will able to withstand you. Immediately, Joshua musters his entire force of men, 600,000 strong, and he assembles them and repeats God's message. And at dusk hours, 
they begin their march to the rescue of the Gibeonites. All right, so number one, Joshua doesn't have to rescue the Gibeonites. They only made a peace treaty, not an alliance. There's such meaning in this, that God was going to defend the Gibeonites. There's that adage, once a friend, always a friend. This peace treaty was going to be treated by God as more of an alliance. We are buds. I don't care if you lied to me. You accepted my lordship, and this is what happens. I defend my servants. Next, put yourself in this context. Who assembles an army to march at dusk and turns them in not to march through the plains, an easier route, but to scale a mountain 3,300 feet high in the middle of the night? That's crazy. No one does that. Not in 1400 B.C., The distance is 18 to 20 miles, and only a reckless or divinely inspired general would do this. Joshua gives the order, and the entire army begins to march up the mountain. I did some research. A good, organized army in the Middle Ages could march about 20 miles a day. Well, that's in a day, not at night, and it's not up a mountain. This is crazy what Joshua was doing. And by the time they get to the top of the mountain in the morning, they should have been completely tanked. They should have been done for days. No, it's like with every step, they were infused with Holy Spirit faith, like Holy Spirit adrenaline shots. They reached the top, and it doesn't say they took a break or snacked or had coffee or even attempted to negotiate or even communicate to the Gibeonites. Here's the next line of the script. Joshua 10, 9. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. Picture this with me. It's now Friday morning. They marched all night. The sun is rising in the east, and the Israelites were emerging from the mountaintop on the east side of Gibeah. And then they fall upon the five kings with the sun at their back. Blinded by the dawn, the five kings and their enormous armies and giants were incapable of defending themselves against the onrushing Israelites who attacked downhill with the sun at their back. The slaughter must have been great. And all through military history, commanders have pursued the perfect field of battle. Here's Joshua emerging with, emerging with the sun behind his back and with the terrain to his advantage. And check out this symbolic meaning here. The sun was at his back. The Son of God was behind him. What did God say to Joshua? I've given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the commander of the Lord's army, was with them and had their back. Joshua 10.10 The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, so Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horn, and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. Now, here is where it gets really crazy. Now, prepare yourself. Joshua 10, 11. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horn to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Hailstones? Are you kidding me? This is awesome. Dude, seriously, hailstones from heaven like guided missiles were clobbering the Amorites. 
All right, so picture this. Some of them would impact the Amorites like guided bombs. And let's assume since it's in a valley, it was covered in grass. But in a few areas, there was large, smooth stones covering the ground. A hundred Amorites run through this area to get away from the Israelites and away from the falling hail. Upon the smooth, rocky surface, they cover a greater distance faster. They think they're getting away, but like crater bombs from behind the veil, four massive hailstones fall upon the smooth stones with such force, the crashing of the hailstones did not have any direct hits, but the impact of the hailstones, the size of a man exploding upon impact like a bomb, wounded every one of the Amorites with ice shrapnel. Their pursuing Israelites had no problem catching up with and annihilating the remaining wounded stragglers. So let's try to pull back the veil a bit here. I know it's ridiculous to even try, but let's go for it. Behind every principality is a host of demons. Behind God and his people are God himself and his angels. Where are the hailstones coming from? God himself or his angels are hurling them at the Amorites. Here's a scripture reference for the hail. Job 38.22 Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? Now why is this in the book of Job? I kind of have no idea, but except it does prove that God reserved hail for times of warfare And he made that statement all the way back in the days of Job. So legions of demons are hoarding around the Amorites, empowering them in battle to fight God's people. And when Joshua topped the mountainside, the blinding light of Jesus came upon the demons and immobilized them. And then God's angels and Joshua's army instantly attacked. The Amorites and their demons were hopelessly forced to be bound or ran for their existence. God was ridding Israel of their influence. They would have to find a new home. And it was not with the Israelites. At least for now. Alright, so back to our timeline. It's Friday around noon or early in the afternoon. The Israelites are obviously being sustained supernaturally. But they're struggling with keeping up with the fleeing Amorites. So much so Joshua would later declare in Joshua 10.19... But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear and do not let them reach your cities for the Lord has given them into your hand. The Israelites are seeing complete victory slip away from them. The day is slipping away. His men are not falling by wounds or death, but some of them are falling from complete exhaustion. Joshua sees a panic and he sees complete victory falling away. He knows the cost of sieges and siege warfare later. And he did not want to let any of the kings get away. This is where Joshua seriously goes down in history, in my opinion. Don't get me wrong, Jericho was awesome. AI was brilliant. But check this out. I mean, who does this? Stepping over dead bodies and climbing upon a rise, possessed by faith. Joshua 10, 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel... Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jasher. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky, and delayed going down about a full day. 
There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. So what's going on here? Joshua commands the sun and moon to stop. Most likely Joshua had a typical 1400 BC idea of astronomy, and he commanded the sun and moon to stop instead of the earth. Of course, we know today the earth revolves around the sun at a speed of 67,000 miles per hour, while the earth rotates on its axis daily at a speed of 1,000 miles per hour. This rotation causes the appearance of the movement of the moon and the sun. The better prayer was, Earth, stop rotating. And regardless of this, it sounds way more cool to me to say, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon, stand still over the valley of Ajalon, versus Earth, stop. There are so many different interpretations of what happened here, but on a supernatural note, God could have done whatever He wanted to fulfill this miracle. The prayer was basically this, do not let darkness steal my victory. The enemy is getting away and I am afraid they will escape in the night. And this prayer brought them, bought them 24 hours of daylight. What Joshua seemed to understand was that this podcast adage that God was above time and space, specifically in his case, time. God froze time so that Joshua could obtain a complete battlefield victory. Of course, if God stopped the earth, he had to do a thousand other miracles to prevent the cataclysmic tidal disorders and other harmful effects to the earth, but God did these as well. The language does suggest there could have been an eclipse, which would fall in line with some of the discussions on the internet about blood-red moons in Israel's history. Check it out. Search on the internet for blood-red moons Israel, and you'll be shocked at some of the uh, upcoming events. But beyond the eclipse, most likely the literal interpretation seems more likely that Joshua prayed and the rotation of the earth stopped for about 24 hours. Now you have to love the next entry. Never has a Lord listened to a man like this. What a really huge statement. How would you like the Lord to say that about you? Never in all the world did the Lord listen to a prayer and fulfill it like yours. What a statement. There is so much glory in these stories. There are some different thoughts from scholars regarding this scene as well. Uh, Baal was considered the god over waters and hail. So God did a miracle with the Jordan and hail to show his supremacy over Baal. Another suggests Baal was the god of the mountains and the valleys, and thus God halted the sun over a mountain and the moon over a valley. So beyond the book of Revelation in this scene, there's another scene in the Bible where, where God possibly changes time. It's in the days of King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20. In this account, Hezekiah is dying of a sickness and Isaiah prays for him and mixes some form of a Holy Spirit inspired homemade concoction and Hezekiah gets better. And he receives the word and that he'll live another 15 years. A sign that this will occur the timepiece outside of his palace would go back a good number of paces. In this scene, did God move or manipulate time or just do a local sign or manipulate a shadow? We don't know, but again, it shows his superiority over time. So I've tried to combine this sun standing still event with Joshua in the movement of the timepiece in the days of Hezekiah to explain the leap year 
but mathematically I can't get them to add up perfectly. Maybe someone has or will one day. What is absolutely and truly profound about this miracle is the fact that God did not tell him what to pray and the radical faith of it. I put this miracle up with some of those greatest in all of history. The profound part is that God did not tell him, hey, Joshua, pray for the earth to stop moving. No, he just declared it and it commanded the miracle to happen. He wasn't even in obedience, but more like possession by God. Let me explain. God typically commands a person to do something, and in turn, God fulfills the supernatural part. The physical part, the man prays or does some type of action. The supernatural part is what God does in the miracle side. For example, Moses with the Red Sea, he put his staff in, then God parted the waters. Joshua crossing the Jordan, when the priest stepped in the water, the waters parted. And there's so many other examples. But this miracle fits into something like a New Testament miracle. I like to think of Peter praying for the man at the gate. Beautiful. God didn't command him at that moment to pray for him. But Peter spoke his healing. It said Jesus did only what he saw his father saying and doing. You don't hear Jesus getting much direction from God because they are such in step with each other. This is called walking in the Spirit. When a person has entered that place of complete unity of walking with God, that the Holy Spirit empowers a believer to do wonders. There is no questioning or obedience. It's more like godly possession. We'll talk more about it in the, with the Judge Gideon, who it says of him that God put him on like a glove. And in turn, Gideon was courageous in battle. Call it, call it the zone. When a person enters that place of unity of the Spirit with God, so much so that wonders happen. Joshua entered this place many times in his life, but at this moment, possessed by God, Joshua declared a change in the heavens above, and instantly it happened. This has to be why it says that never has God listened to a man like this. This is where we arrive at the spiritual gift of the gift of faith. Apostle Paul talks about the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. He covers word of knowledge, word of wisdom, tongues, and other gifts. And one of the gifts is the gift of faith. The gift of faith is an exceptional and over-the-top understanding of the spiritual realm over the natural. The distrust of natural sight and the prioritization of the spiritual over the physical. A man or woman who truly has eyes to see and ears to hear. But like all gifts, they are not always active or obvious in a person's life. And they must be understood. And at this point in Joshua's life, he rises to, one of, to be one of the best examples of this spiritual gift. Staying in step with God in that zone, he knows God's next step in his heart and his actions. Joshua shattered the works of the enemy with his radical faith and declaration, Son, stand still. All right, so back to our timeline. The Israelites stayed up all day, Thursday night, attacked the Amorites on Friday morning until Friday afternoon, and the sun stands still, and it stays for that way for 24 hours. In essence, it's really Saturday night by the time Israel stops fighting. This was a three-day battle. The Israelites carried forth the battle with no sleep for two days and very little rest. 
to consider it militarily for what it really is is crazy. Three days of fighting with no rest. This had to be another miracle of its own. And then imagine the Israelites, when the fighting was over, they must have slept for days. There is a lot of symbolic meaning to this battle as well. Complete victory was obtained in 72 hours. But this is another one of those allusions to the third day. Three days, a three days battle, 72 hours. God gave Joshua complete victory on the third day, representing that resurrection power and victory over death. Just like Jesus brought judgment on the devil's strategy on the cross and conquered death on the third day, Joshua fulfilled the judgment of God on the Amorites and conquered death on the battlefield. Here's the conclusion of the battle. Five kings, including Adonai Jesus himself, were discovered hiding in a cave near Makeda. Joshua 10:24. When they brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with them, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Then Joshua put the kings to death and exposed their bodies on five poles, and they were left hanging on the poles until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order, and they took them down from the poles and threw them in the cave where they were hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks, which are there to this day. Check it out. Joshua had no mercy on the kings, and he hung them on a pole just like the other kings. Our adversary was granted no mercy. Now the battle is concluded, and it turns in now into a military campaign for southern Canaan. First Makeda is destroyed, then Libna, Lachish, Eglon, Hebron, Deber. And here is the conclusion of the matter. Joshua 10.40 So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings in their land Joshua conquered in one campaign, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua turned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I want to consider the sun standing still. Jesus made an outrageous statement in John 14 when he declared, Those who come after him will perform greater works. Could it be we could walk in such a step with God that God can do greater works through us? What if we upped our faith and believed more for the impossible? These characters from the Bible are for our example. I have a friend who's self-employed and like most people who own their own business, the paycheck is what you make of it and his business is cyclical. What I mean is that times he works insane hours and other times business is slow because of the nature of the business. When the busy season comes, he does his best to find the time to get everything done. One of his prayers during this season is, God, multiply my time. He tells me every time he prays this prayer, he finds himself getting more done than he ever expected. What an out-of-the-box prayer. Sometimes I think we get stale in our prayer life and we don't believe enough in the impossible. 
I think we forget that our God is above time and space and his miracle power is available to those who believe. It's a different way of thinking that when challenges come, it's only a setup for a miracle. For our God is the God of the impossible. It's a different mindset to see challenges in life as a future miracle. When Joshua saw his enemy getting away, he didn't just give up. He fought harder and believed what God told him that none of them would get away. So much so he radically stepped in faith and declared sun stand still over Gibeon, moon over the valley of Ajalon. Sometimes the key to our breakthrough is faith in God's word mixed with an outrageous declaration like Joshua's. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we discuss Joshua's northern campaign. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question, or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.